KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the Palestinian second front inside Israel. Sari Makdisi will explain the roles of Palestinian citizens of Israel in the current crisis. Also, our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about Crime of the Century, the new Alex Gibney documentary on HBO about how Big Pharma pushed OxyContin, which has now killed half a million Americans. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, Jamie Dimon, chairman of and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest of the big four American banks, recently said, quote, our cup runneth over, close quote. What cup was he talking about? The amount of uh, filthy lucre, a.k.a. money, <laughs> which has come in not simply to J.P. Morgan Chase, not simply into the banking sector, but into all corporate coffers, just about all, during the pandemic. And the interesting thing, really, is what all of these companies are doing with that money. What are they doing with all that money? Well, uh, as should be no surprise to anyone who follows this sort of thing, they are paying out uh, that money to their shareholders, which also means to themselves. I'll explain that uh, through uh, high levels of dividends and record levels of stock buybacks. The Wall Street Journal earlier this week reported on a Goldman Sachs report, which said that in the first three months of this year, corporations had bought back $504 billion worth of their own stock. Now, uh, you might wonder, what does that do? Well, it reduces the number of outstanding shares. And since nothing else has changed, that raises the value of those shares. So the market uh, moves up in a corporate, in a CEO-induced bubble, and CEOs are largely paid uh, as a reward for any increases in the value of uh, their shares. So surprise, surprise, by buying back their own stock, uh, by having their companies buy back their own stock, they increase their pay. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, a nice, uh, it's a nice system for the beneficiaries. And it, I, yeah. thought, I thought that uh, companies were supposed to use at least some of their profits to increase their productivity, to do research and development, to get new customers. What's happening on that front? Well, in short, you were wrong. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in fact, uh, the, uh, the journal continued to report that in their reports to their shareholders on their quarterly earnings, uh, the uh, CEOs mentioned buybacks and dividends three times more often than they mentioned any investments that they're making, be it in a, a new factory, uh, expanding the number of stores in their uh, in their chain, or God forbid, raising the wages of their workers. They don't they don't really get around to that uh, very often. And you know we are really seeing the consequences of that. There was just a uh, I thought a fascinating op-ed in uh, Wednesday's uh, New York Times about how uh, you, you know. Uh, 
the need for just-in-time production, which is, you know, has fewer lower costs and offshoring means that in a whole bunch of ways, including more than those mentioned in this op-ed, which dealt with the shortage of computer chips, which unfortunately are essential to running lots and lots and lots of things, um, uh, you know, corporations just have run out, which, which means car manufacturers have had to close some factories, uh, various, you know, various instruments that the public depends upon uh, don't work. And it's really the same story with the gas shortage uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the East Coast, which is now pretty much abated. But, you know, it was re re reducing uh, the sources of, uh, of oil and gas to one pipeline. All of this is the sort of thing that Wall Street has been recommending for 40 or 50 years. Uh, don't, uh, you know, don't hold a backup supply of whatever it is you need or make because that just is an added cost. Uh, go to the cheapest subcontractor you can get if your supply chain runs through Lower Slobovia because the people there make three cents an hour, do it. Uh, and, and all of this, I think, has major implications for uh, the Biden administration's proposal to uh, really kickstart some, uh, some companies, uh, some, some manufacturing domestically, which sometimes is put under the heading of a Green New Deal. But even if it's not green, um, this kind of investment isn't coming from the institutions that in theory we count upon to invest. It's coming from, uh, if, it, if it is to come, it will become becoming from uh, the investments that uh, the Biden administration is asking for uh, in manufacturing and in infrastructure and so on. This is kind of a validation of what John Maynard Keynes wrote in the 1930s, that if you wanna to get to full employment and if you wanna to get to uh, uh, the use of uh, resources uh, to uh, improve productivity and improve the, the volume of the product, uh, you're gonna to have to count on the government. Uh, it was true then. If anything, it is truer now. So the CEO of America's biggest bank is feeling great, but a lot of the rest of us are feeling nervous, nervous about Joe Biden's Econ Re Economic Recovery Act. In Los Angeles, we're feeling nervous, especially on after Wednesday's LA Times headline, Biden's child tax credit faces high hurdles. The concept won't be simple to execute. This was supposed to benefit 40 million families. Remind us what this child care tax credit does and, and what the problem is. Well, uh, it was uh, to deliver $3,000 a year to any family uh, with uh, one child under the age of 18 and $3,600 if you have a child under the age of six, and depending on how many children you have, multiply by that, by that number. Now, it, it is a tax refund, but unlike earlier enacted tax refunds, it goes to everyone whose family, you know, has kids. And at the bottom of the uh, American economic uh, uh, economy, at the bottom, uh, you know, there are poor people who don't pay taxes at all. And for the first time, uh, they will receive this money too. And it, it comes in the form of just an automatic deposit into your checking account or what have you. Now that said, 
those families aren't on the tax rolls, so they're going to be not the easy to find. And also, I might add, a lot of them don't have bank accounts, so it's not entirely clear exactly where the government should put the check once it's even found them. So this is going. So this is going to require, I think, a massive public education campaign. This is something the LA Times piece didn't really get into. But I, th I think, uh, for instance, in California, where uh, the state has this amazing $77 billion surplus, the state should, uh, you know, do a, a, a major campaign to help sign up the people who would be the families who would be receiving this, but won't know about it and won't know how to go about getting it, even if, uh, even if they do know about it. So I think that's incumbent on them. Then, of course, there's a political issue that this was included in a, uh, as a one-year program in the Biden stimulus package, the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that uh, uh, he signed into law uh, last month. It has to be renewed uh, on a permanent basis, or as Biden has proposed, since they're somewhat conscious of the numbers here that uh, for the uh, parliament, Senate parliamentarian to rule how much they can do, uh, at least for the next uh, five years. That would require, you know, passing it under reconciliation, since it's difficult to see Republicans supporting that. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge, you know, but it's also a challenge to the Republicans, because this is the kind of legislation that will benefit a large number of the Republicans' constituents. And the Washington Post on Wednesday had a story that said that 93% of the families in Kevin McCarthy's congressional district, his Bakersfield district, uh, are eligible to receive these funds. And of course, oh. McCarthy led the opposition against uh, the stimulus package, which included that. And uh, so if this comes up, this will come up again in Biden's uh, family care uh, package, uh, 2.1 trillion, I think, which has been submitted uh, to Congress. McCarthy's district is one which has a, a very large number of farm workers, many of whom are not citizens, not eligible to vote. And, you know, those that are eligible to vote have been uh, disproportionately Republican, at least by California standards, disproportionately Republican. But his margins have been shrinking, and he hasn't really faced a serious opposition campaign in some time. But I think Kevin McCarthy, the guy who is screwing 93% of the families <laughs> in his own congressional yes. district, yes. Might, if I were a campaign manager, I would recommend something like that for the Democrat running against him. <laughs> yes. Second big topic this week, we need to talk, of course, about Israel and the Palestinians. You recently called Israel a failed state and said the country did not have a legitimate government. Please explain. Well, I, actually, what I noted was that that description pretty much fits both Israel and the non-sovereign state of Palestine. Bibi Netanyahu has failed to form a government after the last four elections over the last two years. He has not been able to put together a majority coalition. And this is sort of okay with him because he stays in power as the interim government until the next election. This is almost like a, uh, I don't know what, a Samuel Beckett play uh, <laughs> in, in, in which uh, the, the, the nation is condemned uh, to be sort of stuck in the middle uh, holding national elections every five months and uh, never actually 
you know, being able to elect uh, a government. So that's on the Israeli side. On the Palestinian side, if you look at the Palestinian Authority, President Abbas is now in the 16th year of his four-year term. Because Wait a minute, the, the 16th year of his four-year term? How, yes. how does that work? Well, he was elected in 2001 for a four-year term, and then because he feared uh, the Fatah wing, the Palestinian authority uh, that governs in the Palestinian Authority, whose sovereignty is his very <laughs> restricted sovereignty is also, is also restricted to the West Bank, because he feared it wouldn't win, he canceled the election in 2005 and 2009, and so on and so on and so on, including he just canceled it again. So he is still serving out what is the 16th year of his four-year term. Uh, Hamas, meanwhile, which controls Gaza, you know, doesn't regularly hold elections either, though they did, uh, they, they did come out on top in, one, in the election long ago, which convinced Abbas not to hold any more elections. And uh, I, I think uh, Palestinians, just like Israelis, uh, have to be rather frustrated at the, the lack of a governmental infrastructure that uh, A, can actually do things, and that's the Israelis' fault, but, but B, that I think really kind of expresses their political desires. I mean, the, the stalemate, which includes occasional sporadic eruptions in significant bloodshed and daily indignities and abuse of Palestinians. The stalemate, uh, it looks so intractable in many ways to both sides. Uh, there was some polling that uh, a newsletter put out by uh, one of the best poll analysts, Rui Teixeira. It, it showed a poll recently of Palestinians which said, yeah, they didn't really think a two-state solution would work, and they didn't really think a one-state solution would work. And that kind of shows you the levels of despair, because those are the alternatives, yes. uh, alternative solutions. Uh, and, you know, Israelis, you know, have largely been living in a, in a state of, of just willful blindness, assuming that the time between uh, eruptions uh, is permanent, and it never is. It never is. And uh, the belief, the mistaken belief has been, well, we can sustain the status quo. But ultimately, you only sustain the status quo through the shedding of blood, both Palestinian and Israeli. And of course, the United States has tremendous influence over Israel. The United States gives Israel $3.8 billion of military aid every year. And that Brings us to your Minnesota moment news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. St. Paul's representative in Congress is Betty McCollum, and she has introduced a historic bill, H.R. 2590, the Palestinian Children and Families Act, which, quote, insists on the rights to safety, dignity, and freedom for the Palestinian people. The bill says, quote, U.S. assistance intended for Israel's security must never be used to violate the human rights of Palestinian children, demolish the homes of Palestinian families, or permanently annex Palestinian lands, close, close quote. She introduced this on back on April 15th, before the current crisis in Gaza reached such a peak, and the bill has been endorsed by dozens of organizations and and over a dozen house members are original co-sponsors it's the list has 
some surprises and some people would we would expect this is more support for Palestinian rights in the House, I think, than we've ever seen before. What do you make of this? Well, I think it's on the left fringe of a of a new continuum, which all of which indicates changing popular sentiment uh, among uh, Democrats, both uh, rank and file and in Congress. This bill is pretty much endorsed, uh, the McConnell bill is pretty much co-sponsored by uh, the, the clear left in, uh, in the Democratic Party. But there's other movement as well. Jerry Nadler, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, whose congressional district, which runs from New York's Upper West Side through Greenwich Village to some neighborhoods in Brooklyn, uh, has more Jews in it than any, uh, any other congressional district. Jerry Nadler uh, sent a letter to the president signed by a, a dozen other Democratic Jewish House members, which basically said, we're as concerned about the Palestinians as we are about the Israelis. Doesn't have the, the sort of sanctions in it that the McCollum thing has, but to have that letter signed by 12 Jewish House members was really something. And I understand that APAC actually tried to dissuade uh, a, a number of Jewish Democrats from signing the letter. My impression is that virtually all the action is in the House. As far as I have seen, in the Senate, only Bernie Sanders has spoken up. He had an op-ed in the, in the New York Times last week where uh, he says, we can no longer be apologists for the right-wing Netanyahu government and its undemocratic and racist behavior. We must change course and adopt an even-handed approach that upholds and strengthens international law regarding the protection of civilians, as well as existing U.S. law holding that the provision of U.S. military aid must not enable human rights abuses. Close quote. That's Bernie. Is there anything more happening in the Senate? Yes. What's more happening in the Senate is that the youngest senator, who is also Jewish, that is John Ossoff, who was elected in November in, uh, in actually, excuse me, elected in January in the runoff in Georgia, put together a letter signed by 28 members of the 50-member Democratic Caucus demanding a ceasefire and, again, having a more balanced perspective uh, than traditional American policy. So like I said, there's a continuum in both houses in which there is don't support the Israelis as long as they keep uh, abusing the Palestinians at one end and uh, we have to have an even-handed treatment at the other end, but both of those ends mark uh, a significant departure from what has been American foreign policy for a very long time. And, you know, they mirror changes in the American Jewish community. You know, the rise of J Street, an organization which says it's pro-Israeli, but has opposed all of the right-wing governments and demands a two-state solution, which in, uh, among Democrats has eclipsed uh, APAC in many ways. And uh, Schumer and Pelosi now go to the annual J Street conventions and speak to them, and both of them have called for a a, a ceasefire uh, well before you know Biden's phone calls with uh, with Bibi. So there's real movement there, and as uh, the press is noting at this juncture, Biden is a little, to put it mildly, uh, behind the emerging majority sentiment within his own political party on this. And you know some of this 
actually has to do with age, I think. Elderly people remember Israel before the 1967 war, yes. uh, when it didn't occupy the West Bank and, uh, and Gaza. Younger people only have the Netanyahu's uh, very long tenure as prime minister to define Israel for them, and that's a pretty, that's a pretty brutal period of Israeli rule as regards Palestinians, to put it mildly. So I think uh, age is a factor here, and it's not a factor that works in favor of uh, continuing to sustain uh, Bibi Netanyahu and his policies uh, in, in Israel. It also, it, it, one more point, one more point. You know, it, it is also at this point a clear rift between American Jews and Israeli Jews on this, which again is a development that's been sort of slow growing over the last 25, 30 years. I, I, I think you have to go back to Itzhak Rabin, who uh, signed the accord with Yasser Arafat at, at, the, at the White House for a, a beginning of a territorial settlement, and then who was assassinated by a right-wing uh, Israeli. You have to go back to Rabin in the early 1990s to find an Israeli government that, at this, uh, that American Jewish public opinion at this point uh, would, would look on uh, with, with something uh, other than the horror with which they look on the Netanyahu regime. One last thing, Jared Kushner. Remember how one of his jobs was to bring peace to the Middle East? He sponsored something called the Abraham Accords, which, uh, and he said that this was marking the, quoting, the last vestiges of what has been known as the Arab-Israel conflict. He said the basic problem in the entire Middle East was the misconception that peace could come only after Israel and Palestinians resolved their differences. He said, quote, that was never true. That conflict was nothing more than a real estate dispute between Israelis and Palestinians, close quote, and that the rest of the Arab world had other issues which the United States could help them solve. And so the Palestinians basically could be ignored. The United States could buy off many of the Arab countries. And in fact, Michel Goldberg, who wrote about this in the New York Times, pointed out the United Arab Emirates got an enormous arm deal from the Trump administration. Morocco got Trump to support its annexation of the Western Sahara. Sudan got taken off America's list of state sponsors of terrorism, all for signing Jared Kushner's Abraham Accords. I wonder if you have any comment on Jared Kushner's Mideast peace plan. Yeah, clearly uh, he was wrong. Uh, it, it is a classic uh, Trump tradition to think that any uh, problem can be solved by buying someone off, particularly if you're not buying someone off with Trump's own money. So, I mean, it's never been clear to me exactly which Abraham they were referring to. There was a, a guy named Abe Attell, who was one of the people who fixed the 1919 World Series. <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, I think that might be more in the, the spirit of Trump and Jared Kushner than uh, any biblical patriarch. Harold Meyerson on biblical patriarchs and fixed World Series games. Read them at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always good to be here, John.
The same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We need to talk about Israel and the Palestinians, and for that we turn to Sari Makdisi. He's professor of English and Comparative Literature at UCLA. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, the LRB, and, of course, The Nation. He's the author of many books, including Tolerance is a Wasteland, Palestine, and the Culture of Denial. It's forthcoming from the University of California Press. Sari Makdisi, welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, almost all the news from the Mideast this week is about Gaza, but your piece at thenation.com reports on what Benjamin Netanyahu recently referred to as the second front. What is the second front? The second front is, in his parlance anyway, is the he's referring to the Palestinian citizens of the state. So these are second-class citizens, second-class Palestinian citizens of, of the state of Israel. I mean, they have Israeli passports and so on, but they have, they're systematically discriminated against legally in terms of access to jobs and land and housing and so on and so forth. And for a long time, they've been, you know, off and on sort of you know, more or less quiet and then more or less active. And now they're they're in a period where they're entering a, a phase of activity. And so the most remarkable about thing about what's been happening recently is the people on the in so we call them the people on the inside, meaning the people who are citizens of the state. They're about 20% of the population of the state. So they they rose up initially in solidarity with the families in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, who are about to be uh, expelled from their homes. And also in response to the Israeli assault on the mosques of Jerusalem as well. And so the most amazing thing about what's happening now is this this sort of grassroots Palestinian mobilization that connects the citizens of the state with those living either in Gaza or in the West Bank or in East Jerusalem in a way that we haven't really seen, not at least in this to, to this extent in in previous uh, previous intifadas, should we say. And that's 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 astonishing to me because it's it's showing grassroots mobilization, popular mobilization, and then it's like there's a kind of reciprocity too. So, for example, the people in Haifa and Yaffa went up the hill to Jerusalem when when the Aqsa Mosque was under siege by the Israelis. They were blocked from getting to the mosque. In fact, they were blocked from getting to Jerusalem at all by Israeli roadblocks. They abandoned their cars and walked, which is extraordinary. And then when we saw uh, Jewish supremacists. Uh, attacking Palestinian houses and and apartments and shops and so forth in those coastal cities, people from Jerusalem came down to the cause of their you know their brethren in on the coast. So there's an amazing sense of uh, commonality among Palestinians now, which you know which of course has always been there, but it has not always been expressed as forcefully as powerfully as it is these days. And that's one of the transformative things that we're witnessing right now. And another aspect of this second front is attacks on what Israel calls the Arab citizens of Israel in their communities by right-wing Israeli Jewish mobs. Yes, yeah, smashing their storefronts and setting up sort of random checkpoints and saying, you know, to people passing by, are you Jewish, are you Muslim, well, who are you, etc. And that if, if, the, if the answer is incorrect, or if they surmise the answer to be incorrect, they drag the person out of the car and beat him savagely. But there's lots of things like that breaking into people's houses. There's some terrifying videos of you know Palestinians, Palestinian citizens of the state, mind you, being barricading themselves into their homes because these guys are trying to break down the doors and get in. It's absolutely terrifying. And and more to the point, what we see is Israeli state security, police or border guards or whatever, sometimes just watching 
you know, quietly and not intervening to help these people, but also sometimes participating actively in these sort of racial uh, rampages. Part of what you're seeing is this, and I talk about it in my piece in The Nation, is this, is this sense of what had been a very kind of profoundly held together sort of state project. Now it's sort of like it's coming apart at the seams. I mean, obviously it's not going to fall apart tomorrow, but there's a kind of a certain degree of unraveling that we're not really used to seeing, and but we're seeing it. And so this duality of the front in Gaza on the one hand, which is subject to this relentless and indiscriminate bombardment of a civilian population, civilian shelterless population, not just shelterless, but they, there's nowhere, like normally if you're being bombed, you can at least run, if, if nothing else, you can at least flee somewhere else. In Gaza, it's a prison, you can't get out. There's nowhere to flee to, and you can't hide. So it's this terrifying thing. On the other hand, on the in these cities on the inside, this sense of racial retribution and racial vengeance, and it's it's hideous. But the reason why it's hideous is because that is in the nature of an ethnic, of any ethnic state, not just this ethnic state. This is in the nature of ethnic states. This is what they're about. They're about ethnic separation and ethnic privilege and so forth. It's not the first time in the history of the world we see such a state, but we see it now more nakedly than we normally see it. You've reminded us that the current crisis did not begin with Hamas sending rockets into Israel. I just want to spend a minute on where the current crisis began in East Jerusalem. In Sheikh Jarrah, a Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem, what what happens in places like Sheikh Jarrah or elsewhere in East Jerusalem on a kind of almost minuscule scale, you know, like literally house by house, flat by flat, there's a consistent attempt by, particularly by right-wing Zionist organizations to take the houses or the shops, or the stores, or whatever, or the parking spaces, or whatever, of Palestinians, and to kind of turn them into, in effect, especially in a densely, pop, you know, densely populated area like Sheikh Jarrah, to create like a mini a Jewish settlement in the middle of a very densely populated Palestinian area. And so, what these settler organizations use, they fall back on the mechanisms of the Israeli legal system, which, of course, in violation of international laws. I say legal system, you know, it understood that that's a, qual- a term to be qualified. And the legal system has these mechanisms in it that enable somebody who's Jewish to go back, if they go back and they do their research properly and they find out that at some point, somebody, at some time in history, somebody Jewish owned the particular place. They can use that mechanism to get the Palestinian family out of out of the home that they've been living in for decades. Of course, the reverse doesn't hold true. There is no mechanism for a Palestinian citizen to, or or non-citizen to reclaim Palestinian property that's been expropriated by the state or its auxiliaries. Like, and and let me just inject. I I understand from my very brief study of what Americans call Sheikh Jarrah that this has been an Arab town for many centuries. After the 1948 war, it was governed by Jordan, and then in 1967, it was conquered by Israel. And unlike the rest of the West Bank, it was not just occupied, but annexed to the state of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. But since then, it has largely remained a Palestinian neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. It still is. It's a totally Palestinian neighborhood. So when the Israelis captured the West Bank and East Jerusalem in 67, what they did is they, they wanted to expand the territorial borders of Jerusalem, of, of East Jerusalem. So they annexed the land of about 28 Palestinian villages that had been just West Bank villages sort of outside of Jerusalem. They annexed that land and then they said, this is all now, we're going to redefine it, we're going to redraw the lines and call this Jerusalem. We call it East Jerusalem, they consider it the whole thing one space. And so that's what this is. Yeah. So it's an, so from a Palestinian perspective, it's a continuation of the Nakba of 1948, right? The Nakba was seven or 800,000 people kind of at once. 
this is a house here, a neighborhood there, an individual household or individual apartment, individual shop. It's very, very small scale, drip, 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 drip. But it's the same thing. It's an extension of the same thing. It's ethnic cleansing on a small, slow scale. But that is what it is. And that is what set the stage for the current for the current for the current crisis. And you write in the nation that the situation that started in the last month around Sheikh Jarrah, you write of that it no longer makes any sense to use the 1948 and 1967 armistice lines as a way of distinguishing the territory often referred to as Israel from that referred to as the occupied territories. Please explain. Yeah, because what we see is the same racial logic. It's happening on both sides of the of this of these more or less arbitrary lines, the, the 1949-67 armistice lines. Just to say what those lines are, when the fighting stopped after the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948, the Israelis made agreements with the various Arab states. In this case, Jordan is the one that matters, and they just drew a line. Basically, it's a ceasefire line, and that's kind of where wherever the armies were at that point when the fighting stopped. That's everybody kept what was on the other side of the line. Israel is recognized internationally within those those lines, but it has never declared its own border. It refuses to declare its own borders. It's very ambiguous as to what it considers to be its territory. Many maps of the state include the West Bank and Gaza as part of what it claims to be its, its territory or the Golan Heights. Yeah, what we're seeing is both... So people have often used the term apartheid. Like, for example, President Carter famously used it in his book in 2006. He talk, but he was very, very clear in his book to say... We could talk about apartheid, but it's strictly in the occupied territories. He says Israel within its pre-67 borders is not an apartheid state. I would disagree with that. I think it it is an apartheid. It always has been an apartheid state. But the point is that there used to be a distinction between apartheid in the occupied territories and apartheid in the pre-67 state. And I think that, that's kind of falling by the wayside. So what we see is one overarching regime of apartheid that encompasses both sides of the 49-67 borders, and that, of course, it works in different ways. They, they don't do large-scale bombing in Haifa or Yaffa. They do in Gaza, right? They don't They don't storm mosques with army troops in Yaffa. They use border guards or police or whatever. It's, the, the modalities are a bit different, but the overarching logic is is the same logic. And that, that sense of there being an Israeli apartheid system that operates on both sides of the lines was validated this year by a B'Tselem report that I'm sure you, you've read or know about, and then by Human Rights Watch just last month. And of course, in 2017, by UNESCO, a, an agency of the United Nations that published a very detailed report on Israel's apartheid system that was published, but written by two huge scholar, American scholars of international law, Virginia Tilly and our colleague from UC, Richard Falk. Which, which, and part of what part of the point all those reports make is that the same system of apartheid operates. It obtains both inside pre sixty seven Israel, and in the occupied territories. And indeed, the the UN report makes the added point that those Palestinians who are the the largest single group of Palestinians, the ones in exile or in refugee camps, they're they're also part of the picture here. They're not allowed to go home because of Israel's system of apartheid. So it's actually not just in the in the territory of the state and its occupied territories, but you know, on a kind of almost global dimension as well. That's what we're dealing with. That's what we're seeing now. That's what people are witnessing right now is this kind of unraveling of distinctions, qualitative distinctions between inside and outside. Now it's the distinctions are quantitative more than qualitative in some sense. Many of my friends have been saying for a long time that the problem is that Israel has had a right-wing government and that the left-wing parties have not been strong enough 
for the last several decades to win power. I know you disagree with that. You wrote in The Nation that the left-wing governments and parties have enabled the occupation and colonization of the remnants of what had been Palestine in 1948. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things. One one is that even, even without 1967, the state itself, I mean, among its own citizens, it differentiates how it how it as a state identifies, that is literally what ID cards it gives its own citizens and how it registers in the, popula- in the state's population registry. So for example, Jewish citizens are acknowledged to have what the state calls Jewish nationality. Palestinian citizens of the state are not, first of all, for a long time, they weren't given any kind of nationality at all. More recently, they've been accredited as having what, what the state calls Arab nationality, or sometimes they say Christian and Muslim in the same line. So it differentiates its own citizens according to what their essentially what the religion is, what it comes is what it boils down to. And it therefore grants or withholds rights on the basis of what their nation what it accords them in terms of national identity. So in other words, in that sense, there there has been racism from left-wing governments and right-wing governments inside the state from the get-go. That is what the state is about. The 1967, you know, co- uh, conquest of the West Bank and East Jerusalem and Gaza continued that. It, of course, it, it with the settlements, the same sort of logic of separation that started unfolding outside the the pre-67 borders of the state. And uh, and so what we what we see as a result is this is this. Uh, proliferation of separation according to racial identity. And uh, that was promulgated by left-wing governments just as much as right-wing governments. For example, the, when the people, they, they look at Netanyahu, who's obviously, you know, he's a man of, of criminal dispositions and up to his eyes in, in corruption and malfeasance of all sorts, not just politically, but kind of financially and otherwise. And, you know, they, they hearken back to the days of the so-called left-wing labor governments of Shimon Peres or Yitzhak Rabin, you know, who, and it's true that they were involved in something called the peace process, but at the same time as they were, as they were talking about peace, they were very busily settling, colonizing the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which of course makes peace impossible to achieve. So there, the current, in a way, it's like substantively very little has actually changed in Israeli policies. Materially, it's pretty much the same thing from the, from from day one. What's changed is the packaging more than more than the substance. And this packaging right now is obnoxious and rude and you know barefaced. And it's sort of it doesn't it doesn't go around with the layers of denial and equivocation and prevarication and so forth that previous governments or it doesn't even pretend to play the game of two state solution, for example. Whereas previous governments, the so-called left or labor governments, did. And so Netanyahu is this kind of, you know, it, he's a kind of brutal, nakedly brutal uh, operative, as opposed to those people like Perez and, and Rabin, who at least at least they would use the vocabulary of peace, even if it was totally disingenuous, which I think it was. At least they sounded, and so the liberals here, for example, could say, oh, look, there's a two-state solution, and oh, if only there were a Palestinian partner for peace, and so on and so forth, which now... In Netanyahu, they don't, they're not able to identify with him in the same way that they were with people like Rabin and Perez. And so that's, that's part of what the difference is about. It's packaging, honestly. And I want to talk briefly about American politics. And that means it's time for your Minnesota moment news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. St. Paul's representative in Congress is Betty McCollum. And she has introduced the historic bill in the House, H.R. 2590, the Palestinian Children and Families Act, which, quote, insists on the rights to safety, dignity, and freedom for the Palestinian people. 
the freedom to thrive free from child detention, home demolitions, continual Israeli annexation, and land theft. And the bill says, quote, U.S. assistance intended for Israel's security must never be used to violate the human rights of Palestinian children, demolish the homes of Palestinian families, or permanently annex Palestinian lands, quote, quote. She she introduced this a couple of years ago. She reintroduced this on April 15th, weeks before the current crisis in Gaza. It's been endorsed by dozens of organizations and has uh, more than a dozen original co-sponsors in the House. Uh, I wonder if you have any comment on, on uh, Betty McCollum's proposal of the Palestinian Children and Families Act in the House. Oh, I think it's a commendable thing that she's been trying to do. And, and you know, I applaud her for doing it. There's no question. She's, and she's careful and calculated in the way in which she's she's crafting the language. It's all about children. And, of course, who could object? It, I mean, I guess some people do object. <laughs> some people in theory, do. nobody should be able to object to, de- to demolishing children's houses and family houses and killing children. Of course, the Israelis do it all the time anyway. But so that's which is great. And, I you know, I, I wish her every success in, in being able to get it through the house and what what's interesting though is that it's not just her any longer. We see uh, other other figures, obviously in the Democratic Party, particularly in the House. I think less so in the Senate. I think there's there's Bernie in the Senate to a certain extent, but otherwise a lot of this stuff is the energy happens to be in the House these days more than in the Senate. And what we're seeing is a kind of split between. I think it's partly younger. It's partly that they're younger, I, I, uh, but it's that doesn't necessarily have to do with age. But it's sort of the more progressive. I don't want to necessarily say get carried away and say left wing side of the Democratic Party, but the more progressive wing, people like AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Hanuman and people like that, and there's some other new representatives as well who have come on who are you know attaching themselves to this movement as opposed to the kind of the more established sort of senior hierarchy of the party, people like Pelosi and and Joe Biden and and so forth, who seem to be trapped in a kind of 1980s time warp, as far as I can tell. And so, but, but the point is, we're seeing not just Representative McCollum's bill, but also a discussion that happened last week uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the halls of the U.S. Congress, where people were op- people like AOC and others were openly talking about apartheid and so forth, which is, that's, as far as I know, that's unprecedented in the U.S. House of Representatives. And it speaks to a kind of shift that's, we're, that's happening now. It's happening. That's the point. We're, we're no longer where we were 15 or 20 or even 10 years ago. And, you know, I talk about this also in other contexts that uh, John Oliver, for example, I don't know if you saw that skit of his, but that John Oliver, I mean, this is a comedy show, right? That he can, and the guy, you know, he has a certain sort of political earnestness in it, not just on this issue, on other issues as well, but that he can spend 20 minutes or whatever talking about what's happening or Trevor Noah, I think it was a few days ago, that Paris Hilton of all people can come out and and condemn what's happening in Gaza. I mean, these individually, these are small, but when you put them all together, with what's been happening in the House of Representatives, you get a sense of this is, something has changed. We're not in the 1980s. I think Biden has no idea of the change that's taking place. I think Nancy Pelosi denies it. But it's, there's something afoot. And I think what we're seeing partly is increasingly support for Israel in this country, in the U.S., is shifting from what it had been for decades in the 60s and 70s and so on as a kind of left-wing or progressive agenda, part of the left-wing or progressive agenda, and it's becoming much more part of a right-wing xenophobic agenda connected to Islamophobia and militarism and 
harsh policing of black and brown communities in the US, which of course, as you know, the Israelis are themselves connected to because they train our police forces among some of them anyway, among other things, including yours, by the way, I don't know about St. Paul, but Minneapolis. Minneapolis, yes. That's the shift that we see taking place right now. And so I think that's remarkable. And I think the idea that, you know, the US is never going to shift, I think is, in, I think that's a mistake. I think the US is shifting and it'll continue to shift. And I think that will open up new possibilities uh, for bringing peace and justice to this question once and for all in the years to come. New possibilities. You can read Sari Makdisi at thenation.com. Sari, thank you for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. My pleasure. Absolutely. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about what's on TV, and so we turn to Ella Taylor. She's written, of course, for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, the LA Times, many other places. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hey, John. Well, at the top of our list this week is a new documentary by Alex Gibney, Crime of the Century. It's on HBO, and it's about what is politely called the opioid crisis. Alex Gibney has made many award-winning and some unforgettable documentaries. The ones I remember best are Going Clear, which is the one about Scientology, which won three Emmys in 2015. The one uh, about misconduct by priests called Mea Maxima Culpa, Silence in the House of God. That won three Emmys in 2013. And of course, Taxi to the Dark Side, which won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in 2007. That's the one about the taxi driver in Afghanistan who was tortured and killed at Bagram Air Force Base. Uh, Alex has been on our show. We talked about every one of these here. But now let's talk about the new one, Crime of the Century. Yes, we'll do, although we already talked together, you and I, about Totally Under Control, which was his... Um a series on Trump's incompetent and cynical handling of COVID. Yes. Um, and he takes a very similar approach to this series. I don't know when the man sleeps because he's basically <laughs> a one-man production company at this point. I mean, just the last year alone, he's produced so many of these social issues series and um, they're getting better every time, I think. This one is very good indeed, although... I was about ready to line this, the uh, Sackler family up and uh, inflict grievous bodily harm on them. Uh, they are at the heart, of course, of the current opioid crisis. Each of these episodes is two hours, and we and the first one is up. The next one is is due next week, so I've only seen one of them, which is begins with um, a history of opium production and use, which I didn't know was thousands of years old. Um, the opium plant, by the way, is a very good looking plant, I have to say. It's just beautiful and we get many shots of it. China and India were growing it uh, thousands of years ago and 
gradually the colonial powers took it over first for you know planting a foot in uh, the so-called new world or worlds uh, and then um, courtesy of my own home country the UK uh, it became a business for profit in the manufacture of what was then called laudanum which appears I believe in many Arthur Conan Doyle stories Sherlock Holmes was hooked on it had he existed and then subsequently of course in the in the present day in the production of morphine uh, and heroin uh, both of which are uh, derived from opium and uh, in the 1990s when uh, it was taken up by a the big farmer as people like to call it uh, or hate call it. Uh, and of course, the drug cartels documented extensively. So all this is actually known. Um, there's been a lot of coverage since 500,000 Americans have died over the last 20 years from opioid addictions. But he makes it really come alive. I think Gibney is very talented at juxtaposing the micro with the macro, that is the the individual experience and individual exploitation of uh, opioids with the macro, which is the, the profits to be made by huge corporations and their infiltration into the government. So it turns out that, that it's not just Big Pharma and the cartels that are the villains, but to some degree, the federal, the Food and Drug Administration, which was infiltrated by the Sackler family of Purdue and their company Purdue, that they found a man named uh, Curtis Wright, who was extremely biddable and was later employed by them once he had left the FDA, such that they were able to get FDA approval um, of OxyContin, which of course is the the grim reaper of, uh, of all these opioids. And uh, eventually, uh, in fact, there are long conversations in which Gibney himself grills Richard Sackler, a very creepy customer, um, indeed, very smooth. And Arthur Sackler, who founded the company, died before the law could get to him. But Sackler uh, was indicted on charges of money laundering, fraud and wire fraud. Uh, what they did was not only to bribe a shockingly large number of legit doctors, but also to manufacture fake doctors um, whose business cards, business cards for people, for doctors who didn't exist. Now, there is capitalism, there is big business, and there are drug cartels, but there are also a lot of individuals with zero moral compasses of their own. And the Sacklers, of course, head the list. A very complicated family known for their extensive philanthropy and art collecting, but also completely without any restraint in practicing fraud. Uh, and in particular, you know, their particular sin was to um, call these drugs non-addictive. Yes, the big claim was they had this huge advertising campaign to convince family doctors everywhere in America that OxyContin was not addictive. And thousands and thousands of doctors prescribed it and kept prescribing it. And one of uh, Alex Gibney's great moments comes here when they go over the revelation, which appeared in the news, that Purdue Pharma, in fact, never held clinical trials 
to show that OxyContin was less addictive or less likely to ab be abused. And this, it turns out, has been known since 2006, but never became public until the last couple of years. Of course, now Purdue is in bankruptcy. They've, they've agreed to pay a settlement of $8 billion. But I believe none of the Sackler family has gone to prison. Is that right? That is right. And um, Gibney corners Richard Sackler and asks him some very difficult questions. And he doesn't flinch or blink an eye in lying or, or, com or complaining that he has no knowledge of, of whatever, you know, he's being asked of. So it seems that none of them at this moment is going to prison, whether that will happen in the future, it certainly should, because they have ruined many lives. And that's Gibney's other gift here, which is that he chronicles the suffering of one particular now widower um, of a very vibrant young woman um, who was turned into a zombie by a man, an actual physician named Lynn Webster, who ran you know, so many of these occurred in West Virginia in coal mining country. And uh, he interviews the uh, widower of this woman and goes extensively into, you know, the process of deterioration, a very respectable, loving mother of several children who eventually uh, died of, of an overdose of OxyContin. And you really just weep for these families. But Richard Sackler and his family don't waste a single tear on them from what we've seen. It's all about how they can get out of it. So uh, Gibney's very good at, at putting the liars and the sufferers together in his documentary so that you can take the absolute measure of the abyss between the lie and the evidence that we now have. He also does something interesting is that the EMTs, the emergency medical technicians who have to deal with this on, a, on an everyday basis and in, on a huge scale in the heartland in, in West Virginia and really just everywhere now, suffer from enormous stress at the work that they're doing because that has become the, bu the bulk of the work they're doing, often with very young people. And he interviews one EMT who actually wanted to work in this area because he's seen so many of his 19-year-old friends uh, mm. succumb to it. But he's now thinking of getting out of that work because he can't take it anymore. You know, it's very extremely thorough, and the next episode will deal with fentanyl. That it comes, you know, up to the present with the uh, manufacture and marketing of of fentanyl. And I will watch it, not with great pleasure, I'm I must say, but I think he's done a very good job of synthesizing all the different parts of this so that they uh, they come to the general public in a much deeper way than the evening news which is all about the bodies and not about the, about the origins yeah i think that's the key here my you know i saw that alex was doing this i thought don't we already know all this hasn't been this been in the paper for years now but of course you are absolutely right to see the people and the way Alex has organized this, it really brings it to life in the most gripping and horrifying way that, as you say, you don't get in the uh, on the evening news. Crime of the Century, the new documentary about the opioid crisis by Alex Gibney, is playing now on HBO. The first of two parts is up this week, the part on OxyContin. Next week, we will move on to Fentanyl, whose billionaire founder, John Kapoor, 
uh, was actually found guilty in May 2019 of bribing doctors and defrauding insurance companies, one of the very few big pharma executives to go to prison. Now for something completely different, can you recommend something that is not about evil corporations that get people hooked on opioids? Yes, we're going to talk about the wonderful actress Jean Smart, um, who, by the way, I didn't know, although she's primarily known for her comic roles, as in Designing Women. She's been on Fargo, Watchmen, and she was on Frasier, too. Has also played the, the TV series uh, in the TV version of the serial killer Eileen Warnos. Uh, that's not the film film, but the TV version. And I, having sort of reviewed a lot of work, I, it now doesn't surprise me a bit because her range is just enormous. Um, she is currently starring in um, two, not one, but two HBO series, both of them very good indeed. Um, one is Mayor of Easttown, in which she plays the mother of Kate Winslet, who is the central character. Winslet is a very grumpy, uh, rather embittered, but very good detective. And she lives together with her mother, who's played by Jean Smart, who's this incredibly sort of foul-mouthed older woman who doesn't get along at all with her daughter and vice versa. They fight all the time and their language is extremely colourful and, and their timing is absolutely great to great actresses. She's, she does provide most of the humour of that show, but of course it's not a funny show. It's a, it's a crime detective series, the, which does something very interesting is that, you know, they really don't get on in a major way. They drive each other crazy, but they are both united in their love of Kate Winslet's grandson, if you can believe that Kate Winslet can play a character who has a grandson. <laughs> um, she doesn't look old enough, but of course they live in a working class uh, small town in Pennsylvania. Winslet's character is after um, a murder, she gets all sorts of terrible advice from her mother, but the two of them are united over um, this little grandson uh, whose custody is, they, they are in charge of his custody, but it's being contested by his mother, um, who has a very checkered career. And there's something tremendously moving about the way these two who can't stand each other come together uh, in the defense of, of this small boy. And Jean Smart in particular, I think she almost walks away with the series because she's able to switch um, into serious mode in such a way that you barely notice until she's in serious mode. It's really quite wonderful to watch her do that. It's a, it's a performance completely without vanity. This is an old woman with a terrible haircut and um, uh, a very bad taste in absolutely everything and not particularly uh, competent in a lot of areas, but she knows how motherhood works and she knows how custody works and she's awfully good in it. Uh, and the series in general is, is really worth watching. She's also in a brand new comedy called Hacks, also on HBO, um, which of which there are two episodes now available and there will be new episodes every Thursday. The other series um, you, releases a new episode every Sunday and I've been watching them avidly. And here she plays in Hacks an aging stand-up comedian who operates in Las Vegas 
very ribald jokes with punchlines, very old school, but she's been enormously successful and she lives in this um, extraordinarily vulgar-looking mansion, as you can <laughs> yes. imagine, with all these silent assistants who pad around in sneakers. <laughs> um, but she is being asked to uh, lessen the number of shows that she does uh, and also to incorporate a writer. She written, she's written her own material until now, to incorporate a writer who will appeal to the younger generation. She's absolutely furious about this, but she agrees at least to talk to a young stand-up comedian who's played very well by Hannah Einbinder, who is a comedian herself, who is the absolute opposite of Jean Smart's character, Deborah Vance, in that she... Um, she represents her generation very much. She's very politically correct. Uh, she's bisexual. She recycles compulsively. And she's absolutely appalled not only by Deborah, who is very much a sort of Joan Rivers type of, of comedian, but also uh, by Las Vegas itself. She absolutely hates the place. And, and uh, they are forced into each other's company. And uh, it doesn't go well uh, much of the time, especially as Jean Smart's character is doing her best to put down uh, the younger comedian, uh, who's also been unwillingly placed in this by her agent and manager, who is played by Paul W. Downs. And he's absolutely terrific as this young manager who's trying to salvage the career, the unsalvageable careers um, of these two women. And the first two episodes are really about them trying to find a way to work together. Again, with this series, um, which is put, to, you know, the showrunner is the same showrunner from Parks and Recreation. So we're dealing with very out there comedy uh, that also takes its characters very seriously in some ways. So they're not just idiots um, and they're not just priggish newcomers and they're not just vulgar uh, although they are Jean Smart's character absolutely is I mean everything is expressed not just in her costume but in her walk on high heels which is you know exactly like Joan Rivers actually <laughs> um, and uh, her life is you know her work is her life she has very little other life this the subordinate characters are very good in this show everybody is acting uh, marvelously, but the strength is really in the acting and the writing, which is extraordinarily crisp, uh, acutely observed, and uh, has a very wry but non-stereotypical view of Las Vegas uh, culture. So, yes, there are shots of the casinos, but it's it's shown in a very original way, which I would be doing our listeners a disservice by revealing. Gene Smart is in the new HBO Max comedy series, Hacks. At the same time, she plays Kate Winslet's mother in Mayor of Easttown, the small-town police drama, also on HBO. We have time for one more briefly. Uh, this one is a wonderful, small, independent movie called The Killing of Two Lovers, which is a neon um, film directed in his... Uh, solo feature debut by Robert um, McElwain. 
uh, and it will be screening at Lemley NoHo 7, Playhouse 7 and The Landmark, and also on just about every VOD platform that you can think of, Amazon, Apple, YouTube, Vudu, the, um, the, the works. Um, now, a gun, in fact, is waved around rather incompetently and with ambiguous results in the first and third act. But this is more Chekhov than it is Charles Bronson, shall we say. Okay. Um, because it's about a, um, a man who is facing the possible end of his marriage. He and his wife have separated. They would both like to get back together. And these are working people who live in the small uh, town of Kanosh, Utah. Um, he is a casual laborer and um, she is a mother at the beginning of the film and towards the end um, is, is a mother with a career. <laughs> but that's not the main theme here. The main theme um, is the tension between um, the man's wish to resume his marriage. So this is a guy who absolutely loves being a father. He's very good at it. Um, but the marriage has gone sour and he's torn between wanting to um, reinstate it as soon as possible uh, and his desire to respect his partner's wishes um, because uh, it's come at her behest. The separation has come at her behest. Um, and that's really, and the movie is all about them both trying to work through this, which may sound very dry, but it's very delicately and beautifully handled. Uh, and in particular, it has a lovely score. The landscapes are just gorgeous. Um, the director was a cinematographer at one point. And I think it's great uh, strength is that it honors both the intelligence and the soul of working people in ways that so many American movies tend not to do. The Killing of Two Lovers, video on demand on all the usual platforms, as well as some of the Lemily theaters in Los Angeles. Ella Taylor is our TV and film critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Entirely my pleasure, John. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.